Welcome back to Across the Movie Aisle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I'm your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. I'm joined, as always, by Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? I'm well. I am happy to be talking about movies with friends. First up in controversies and controversies, just hours before kickoff of Monday Night Football for the 2023-2024 season, uh, in which the New York football Jets are playing the Buffalo Bills. It's a game that was going to be broadcast on Disney-owned ESPN. Charter, which owns Spectrum Cable Companies, and Disney, which again owns ESPN, struck a deal allowing Disney-owned channels back onto Spectrum Cable. Um, some background here. ESPN wanted to raise its affiliate fees by another dollar and change, thus increasing the overall cost of the cable bundle yet again. Charter said that was ridiculous, but they'd do it. They'd pay off Disney if Disney allowed them to bundle the ad-supported iteration of Disney Plus with cable packages. Now, Disney said that was ridiculous. The whole point of Disney Plus was to give the company a post-cable future. So Spectrum blacked out ESPN and other Disney-owned channels, upping the ante this weekend by texting Spectrum customers a deal on Fubo, a cable-like company offering an internet-based channel bundle. I got one of those text messages myself being a Spectrum customer. I live in Dallas. We have Spectrum cable here. And uh, as, as I've been considering getting rid of cable myself, it was a very enticing offer. And it was interesting and kind of shocking, frankly, because here's the cable company, my cable company, which is used to just extracting money from me, essentially saying to me and saying, why don't you go sign up for somebody else? Just, just go go do that. Get out, get out of it. We don't want you in this business anymore. Uh, Charter, it seems, had finally had enough. Uh, just when I thought I was out, though, they pulled me back in. Charter and Spectrum will continue to show ESPN, and they now have the chance to give customers ESPN Plus and Disney Plus, Charter does. Um, this is a big get for them, I think. And it's a big get for Disney, too, who can continue generating affiliate fees for ESPN uh, while perhaps finding a new audience for Disney Plus. I mean, those are going to be the ad-supported tiers. So in theory, anybody who watches them are uh, helping them to increase revenue, even if they are not paying the $7 a month or $9 a month or whatever for the ad tier service. I'm curious to see a couple things here. One of them being how Disney kind of calculates those viewers into their overall subscriber numbers, but also just what the average revenue per user on these things are. Who this makes the most sense for in the long run really depends on what customer behavior looks like going forward here. Peter, is this a way to save the bundle, offering cable subscribers access to channels like Paramount Plus or Peacock or whatever in exchange for higher affiliate fees on other channels? Or is Disney slash ESPN simply unique thanks to America's unique obsession with the NFL? It's a little bit unique, uh, but it's also a way to preserve the bundle for a little while, at least. I basically think that this whole deal and this whole fight is a sign of the precarious in-between moment that we are in, in which it is very obvious that cable as we know it does not have a future, at least in its old form. Maybe there's a, a cable bundle-like thing that is going to pop up uh, you know, in, and be normal in the future, but the old cable model and the cable carriers, like that that form is going to die or at least be substantially shrunken in the near future. And streaming is going to be the model. Like that's that's going to happen some way or another. At the same time, the streaming services, Netflix may be accepted, aren't yet in a position where they can just mint money and be profitable on their own. And, and especially if they if those companies still have business with old 
cable carriers, they're going to want to sort of build their new empires while keeping the cash flow going from the old ones. And the old empires are going to say, wait, 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 wait a minute. What are we doing here? Yeah, Alyssa, I mean, look, this seems like kind of a win-win for the cable companies and the streaming companies. The big question is, what does it mean for the consumer? Is this the sort of thing where the the deal is good enough that the Spectrum subscribers will cancel their Disney Plus and watch the, you know, the the free ad-supported version? Or is it, you know, just like another hassle, another thing to, you know, kind of figure out and worry about? So, I mean, I think what we've seen from Netflix is that uptake on ad-supported tiers has been pretty strong. Um, But I think the question is whether people have the bandwidth and energy to disconnect one account, reconnect it through their cable account. It's just, it's a logistical hurdle that isn't going to be pushed on them as strongly as Netflix cutting down on password sharing has been. But the real reason I flag this story is not necessarily for what it says about streaming, but for what it says about the cable bundle. Because an under sort of discussed aspect of the cable bundle has been that there has been sort of cable bloat and cable proliferation in the same way that we've seen this huge proliferation of streaming services only happening earlier. And part of the deal between Charter and Disney here is that Charter will have to offer a bunch fewer Disney networks Mm -hmm. uh, because there are all of these sort of spinoff networks that, you know, FXX, which was sort of the comedy sub-brand of the FX network, and the FX network has been, you know, really shifted as a brand as a way to sell Hulu and sort of differentiate that as a product in a way that has made the sort of FX and FXX lineup sort of much less a significant part of event TV branding. There are a bunch of just sort of random small Disney-ish channels that I honestly had never heard of or hadn't thought about in years. Freeform. Exactly. That, you know, are going to get sort of cut out here. And so I think part of what this deal represents is not just the sort of awkward transition from linear TV to streaming, but in fact, the streaming down of the cable bundle itself, um, which I think has probably been in the cards for a while, but is something that has gotten much less attention than the competition between the upstart streamers themselves. I think the cable bundle is itself about to become a leader product. You raise a very good point here because this is a thing that is not entirely well understood and is not always discussed when we talk about the the rise and cost of cable TV. Uh, because what happened was a bunch of channels realized that they could have one channel that had a bunch of, you know, critically acclaimed popular stuff. So in the case of FX, right, you have FX that has, you know, The Shield or Nip Tuck uh, or or whatever. The there Americans. Are other shows. The Sons Americans, right. Yeah. Again, not necessarily shows that had huge ratings, but were critically acclaimed that there was a, a vocal and active viewership out there that really wanted to, to keep everything going there. And then what those channels would do would be to create little families of cable channels. So FX soon became FX plus FXX plus FXM plus a bunch of other stuff, right? Uh, and you see this over and over again. Disney is another example, as, as we're discussing here. There, there are a bunch of Disney channels that are going to kind of get lopped off. But you see it all over. And that was one of the reasons the cost of cable went up was because each of those channels came with smaller in most cases, but still, you know, they they add up. The pennies add up when you're talking about 100 million customers, or in the, the case of Spectrum slash Charter, 15 million, right? If you have to pay 10 cents for every household Freeform is in, and Freeform is in 15 million homes, that's another $1.5 million a month 
that yeah. uh, that they have to account for. Yeah. So it's a it's a real problem, and I think and and this gets to my broader point, which is that both the cable companies and the cable channels, the cable networks, kind of conspired with each other to kill this golden goose. They all got greedy and they all just larded up the system with a bunch of stuff nobody wanted. And eventually, people said, "Well, this sucks. I'm out." Yeah, but I think, you know, look, when John Landgraf was talking about peak TV years ago, he wasn't just talking about the streaming services. And I think the term peak TV has become sort of associated with the streaming services via the just incredible Netflix churn of content. But the TV, the linear TV networks themselves, I think, clearly overexpanded. And I think what you will end up with is a more consolidated streaming environment and a leaner bundle and a price equilibrium that works out where some of the money is shifted to streaming, some of the, you know, some of the money goes away from the cable bundle. But a new economic equilibrium is coming where I bet the overall costs stay roughly the same for the same number of channels. But, you know, each bundle ends up being sort of constituted differently. Yeah, Peter, this has always been my grand theory of cable is that we're going to end up spending about the same amount of money and probably just getting fewer channels overall. I think that is probably roughly true. But I think the new era is going to have at least a different set of bundling options and probably a lot more bundling options than the old era did, where even, I mean, certainly 25 years ago, there were actually very few kind of toggles on your cable package. Over the past 15 or 20 years, uh, there have been cable companies have started to offer more complex packages, but even still, there are real limitations, as this deal in some ways shows. Um, and streaming was in some sense an answer to the fact that cable said, there's some choices here, but it's like five choices or seven choices or five choices with a couple of add-ons that you can, you know, uh, that you can tack onto each one of these things. And I think that the the number of options that consumers have is going to increase dramatically. And so some people may be able to spend quite a bit less, though on average, the total spend is probably going to be about the same or or more even, like kind of in, in line with growth trends in the industry. Yes, of course, the industry is going to shrink here, but it may end up being that we're, consumers are paying kind of just a little bit more and getting somewhat less. And it probably won't matter that much in many cases, uh, just because most people weren't watching everything that they were subscribing to anyway. And so this will be this will be people paying the same to subscribe to something a little more tailored and a little closer to what they actually want and watch. Again, the most interesting thing from this whole saga for me was Spectrum sending me a text message saying, hey, maybe you want to sign up for Fubo. Maybe you want something else because we can't guarantee that we're going to have what you want. And frankly, we're not that interested in being in this business anymore. We're still going to get your broadband. You know, you're still going to get your Internet through us. But maybe watch TV somewhere else. I don't know. Maybe maybe that's better. Which is, I, 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 again, I cannot think of another circumstance in which this has ever happened in any uh, business I've ever been a customer of. Yeah, I will say it's fascinating the extent to which, you know, these sort of bundled telecoms don't really seem to want to be in the business of providing television service. Uh, I mean, just anecdotally, we sat down to watch the Giants game last night only to find that our Verizon set-top box no longer seemed to recognize NBC. And, you know, the response I got from Verizon was like, well, 
it both seems to be an unreported outage, but maybe it's a coaxial issue. And we just ended up streaming the game instead. But I, I understand that the process of delivering content via copper wire is not particularly sexy, but if it's the business that you've chosen to be in, it would be nice if folks were excited about doing it well. Yeah. Well, uh, they yeah. were never excited about doing it well. And it, yeah. and it, uh, here in DC, we have uh, Comcast. And while Comcast customer service has improved over the past 10 years or so, I, I say this as somebody who's been a Comcast customer since I moved into the city, the worst customer experiences I have ever had have pretty much all been with Comcast. And Comcast was at one point one of the worst rated companies in the United States <laughs> for for customer service, like just of all companies, period. Yes. I don't know if it was actually number one, but it was like within the top 10, certainly. And the reason was that they had effectively no competition. And so they were happy to be in the business when they had effectively no competition and there was nothing hard about it. All you had to do was be there and be bad at it. And the, if you wanted to watch stuff on a screen – that was your option. And so now that there is competition, they're like, oh, they expect us to compete. But competition is good. The cable companies still provide remarkably bad customer service in many cases, but it is a lot better than it was in 2005 or 2008 when I was moving around a lot and getting a lot of cable hookups and having to deal with, with their contractors and their installation and all of that. And it was just an absolute nightmare every single time. Yeah. Uh, all right, so what do we think? Is it a controversy or a non-controversy that the cable bundle is uh, kind of sort of starting to look like a cable and streaming mega bundle? Alyssa? It's controversial just in that it's a big industry shift. Peter? I agree with Alyssa. I don't know. Controversy, controversy doesn't really make sense here. It's a bad category, category error. But I will wow, say that- uh, I will did say- you, I, Did you do I, the I, moderation I, wrong? I will say I will say, well look we have our we have our formulas and we try and stick to them uh, just like the cable companies and we see we're seeing how that works out for them. <laughs> I I think I look again I, I I am mostly just interested to see what the knock-on effects from this are if this leads to Paramount Plus uh, making similar deals uh, or whatever. I I think I I really feel like this is the only way for cable as a video service to survive and maybe they just decide they don't want to survive and that's fine and everybody switches to Fubo or Hulu Live or YouTube TV or whatever, maybe that makes more sense in the long run. Uh, we'll see. Tubi. Right. Tubi. Tubi. Well, I think Tubi it's isn't Tubi. A, that's, a diff that's slightly different. That's slightly yeah. different. All right. I don't, I don't uh, even know what all these things are. We're, we're getting sidetracked here. I, just, I will just relate one very brief, annoying story. I was trying to watch Toast of Tinseltown, the new spinoff slash sequel to Toast of London, the Matt Berry starring BBC show, uh, which is which is very good and popular. And the only, the only channel that has it in the United States is the Roku channel. And I can't get the Roku channel on my Apple TV or my LG TV. I had to download it on my Amazon Fire Stick, which is in like my backup TV in a different part of the house. So my wife and I ended up watching it on that it's just the whole thing is ridiculous everything in everything in this dumb it's exhausting modern is what it is it's media exhausting. landscape is annoying and exhausting and uh, just ridiculous i love right. it i want even more choices just too many choices just give me one i want three channels again just give me fox uh, four channels fox abc cbs and nbc that's it that's all i want all right uh make sure to swing by bulwark plus on friday for our bonus episode on the archival potential of piracy. And now, on to the main event. You are so not invited to my bat mitzvah. The bat latest mitzvah. Bat, bat 
Bat mitzvah. Bat's mitzvah. It's going to be one of those episodes. It's the latest Adam Sandler production uh, for Netflix. It's a coming-of-age story, kind of a modern Are You There, God? It's me, Margaret sort of thing that deals with all the difficulties of modern life, phones, TikToks, hip rabbis, etc., cetera, uh, and the eternal difficulties of life, puberty, periods, why God allows evil if he is just and good, hip rabbis, etc., in a way that is both familiar and specific. Uh, familiar in part because Sandler, as always, casts people from his regular orbit. Uh, I love that Adina Menzel has basically become Adam Sandler's movie wife when Jennifer Aniston isn't playing Adam Sandler's movie wife. And like kind of very specifically in the more Jewish oriented ones, like for instance, Uncut Gems here. I think it's very funny to me. I don't know, it cracks me up. Uh, Luis Guzman, he plays a harried father in the midst of a divorce trying not to go broke. And I thought I saw Steve Buscemi in a bit part, but it turns out it was Michael Buscemi, which is like a million times funnier. The Adam Sandler jobs program extends to family friends now. Uh, you'd love to see it. Um, but this is also, it's look, it's a very specific movie about a very specific milieu, which is to say kind of upper middle class Jewish girls and their parents. And I found this specificity totally charming, um, just both in the depiction of Stacey Friedman, uh, who's played by Sonny Sandler, and her various awkward difficulties with her father, who's played by real life dad, Adam Sandler. I am a sucker for the Sandman, as longtime listeners of this show know. Uh, and I love basically every choice he made in this movie. The stuff on screen, of course, like wearing a robe to a movie theater uh, and talking about going out to his car to get a blanket because it's so cold inside. It's very familiar to me, although my robe is an American giant hoodie. But also the choices <laughs> made off screen, right? Here's the thing. Adam Sandler, Adam Sandler has just won at life. Like he has, he has triumphed in life and I deeply admire him for it. He has this fantastically rich deal with Netflix and what does he do with it? He makes movies with his friends in fabulous locations and locales and then he makes movies with his family in completely normal locations and locales. He gets work for the people who matter to him. He makes family-friendly, unobjectionable movies of the sort that you don't see too frequently, certainly in theaters and on streaming as well. And he seems to just be having a lot of fun while doing it. Uh, you know, he's it's the sort of thing where I could resent his success and hold it against him, but he just seems like too fundamentally decent. He's having too good a time. Good for him. I, I'm grading on a, the Netflix curve here, which, you know, we all kind of define as like, was this a movie that you can watch while you're looking at your phone and and not really paying that much attention to it, but it's still entertaining enough. And it, it is, it's totally that. Uh, it's maybe even a little bit more. I, I Again, totally charmed by this movie. Was not expecting it necessarily. Um, it's not really my milieu. Uh, Alyssa, this is, I think, a little bit more your milieu. What did you make of You Are So Not Invited to My Bat Mitzvah? Yeah, I so I uh, was not raised in a Jewish household. Uh, my mom is, um, is Christian. My dad is Jewish. For listeners who aren't super familiar with Judaism, in most Jewish traditions, Judaism descends through the mother. So if your mother's not Jewish, you're not sort of born Jewish, and you would have to convert to be considered Jewish by the more, uh, the sort of stricter traditions. You know, my husband and I, I think both are at a point where we consider ourselves culturally Jewish. Um, and that's sort of the a significant part of our identity, but we're not, you know, religiously observant. And this is a long way of saying that I was not actually bat mitzvahed, but I went to a lot of bar and bat mitzvahs growing up and have reached the stage where I'm starting to attend the bar and bat mitzvahs of friends and family's children. So I've seen the kind of bar and bat mitzvah inflation that is depicted in this movie in a fairly winning way. And 
it really nails the specificity of the combination of this religious event. And again, for people who are not Jewish, have not followed this, you know, the importance of a bar bat mitzvah in a young person's life is that they're called up to the bima to read from the Torah as an adult member of the Jewish community for the first time. And so, you know, knowing your Torah portion enough to sing it well, um, to sort of handle the responsibilities of leading the prayer service along with your rabbi, you know, I mean, it takes significant kind of intellectual and performative preparation. It's not like you hit an arbitrary age and you get a big, a big party. It's that you are formally taking on adult responsibilities in the Jewish community of which you're a part. And this movie does a really good job of capturing the preparation, the idea that you're supposed to have a service, that you know, the service project that you're supposed to do and find meaningful and kind of the tension between taking on that adult responsibility and the consumerism of, you know, contemporary bar and bat mitzvahs in families that can afford to celebrate on a particular scale. So that's all just handled extremely well. Sarah Sherman is very funny as the sort of hip rabbi. And again, that's sort of the like, desperately wanting to be cool and being sort of inherently uncool uh, kind of training rabbi figures very much sort of a, a staple of the sort of the trope of the bar or bat mitzvah. Um, but what I think really nails this movie is actually the performances by the young actors. Sunny Sandler's really good in this movie. And, you know, she is, she is good in material where like her character does some things that are genuinely cruel, even by the standards of kind of teen movie stuff. Um, she's not afraid to be like totally ridiculous in the scene where she's like got this sort of totally overdone makeup on, is trying to like pose for some hot selfies. You know, she comes across as genuinely bereft in the scenes where her friendship with her best friend Lydia has fallen apart. She, I mean, she's quite a, she's a pretty, you know, pot she's got some potential as a physical comedian, I think. And so, you know, it's very easy for a movie like this to be like a total nepotism project, but it's also a movie that absolutely does not work if she is not good in the role. And she's very, very charming in the role. And the kids who play her friends are also good, right? I mean, part of what's fascinating about this is not just the specificity of the Jewish experience that's depicted in it, but the specificity of a situation not just in which kids are sort of presenting themselves on their phones all the time, but in which they're recording each other on their phones all the time and building these troves of material on each other. Um, Jessica Gross actually wrote about this in a really intelligent way, I thought, for the New York Times about how, you know, we're cautioning kids about what they share, but not about what they do necessarily with the documentation they have of other people, unless it's like, you shouldn't share other people's nude pictures. And so I thought that this did an excellent job of blending a specific cultural milieu and a, a very specific generational experience in a way that probably is not gonna make it some kind of modern classic. It's probably too specifically bounded for that to be the case, but that I think is a really kind of charming document of this moment anchored by a performance that I was legitimately kind of surprised to enjoy as much as I did. I would say surprised enjoyment would be uh, kind of how I experienced this movie, Peter. Uh, you you watched it almost literally right before the show. You were you were racing to catch up uh, to the rest of us. What did you what what are your instant reacts to it? We've we've got your freshest takes possible. I appreciated this movie. 
and I found it very charming. I'm not sure I enjoyed it in the way that one sort of like enjoys a movie that sinks into just sort of uh, like relating to the character, sort of being highly involved in the plot or anything like that, just because it is a milieu that is pretty foreign to me. I was uh, in basically all ways. And yet, and yet, it's a movie that is that does an, a good enough job of both being, as Alyssa said, very specific, but also bringing in people who maybe not have this, you know, like who aren't Jewish, who have not, uh, you know, attended a lot of uh, uh, bat or bar mitzvahs uh, themselves, who sort of only vaguely uh, understand, uh, you know, some of the traditions here. And the movie, it's not just a, a nicely performed movie. It's a, actually a pretty well written one. Uh, I won't say it's a great script. But it doesn't overstay its welcome. It's really nicely paced. Just about every one of the scenes of exposition, someone gave some thought to. And that's actually one of the big things that, uh, that struck me about the, this movie and that is unusual in this class of film. So you have, you have um, the hip, unhip rabbi who is like singing goofy songs, but also explaining a lot of what is going on in the, the process of this. Uh, a lot of the time when you have some char two characters who just need to relate some plot information to each other, there will be some other bit happening in that scene that is very strange, that is very funny, that is keep holding your attention, that is designed to ensure that this is actually funny and we're trying to entertain you, not just this scene is here so that we can have three minutes of moving the plot along. And that's rarer than it should be. And in some ways, that's a little bit of faint praise, but it's also most movies don't, far too many movies, especially movies targeted at this particular, at young uh, at young viewers, just don't bother to do that. And I really felt like there was a lot of Sandler influence, um, maybe not at the center of this film, although obviously his daughter's playing the, the, the lead role, right? His, his family is all over this. But at the margins where you could see all of these very odd, very sort of bizarre Sandler-esque characters of the type that we have now been watching for, I don't know, almost 30 years. Um, not just Louise Guzman, who's great and just so delightful to see on screen, even when he's just like, ah, he's like, this, this was not like one of his great performances. It was also just totally wonderful to watch him be this disgruntled sort of a hairy divorcee in the middle of things. Um, but all like, Think of the older woman at the um, at the retirement home who is trying to convert and she wants her books and that great weird little scene in which she stares out of the car window at the very end and how oddly it is played right in that classic Sandler way of we're going to push this to a level of, of absurdity and discomfort that is like until you laugh right until you just sort of see the the kind of inherent cartoon weirdness of all humanity. You see that uh, with uh, DJ Shmuley and the, all the car crashes and just the, the weirdness of that, although that also is. I mean, there are a bunch of uh, you know, I have a, a, enough Jewish friends to like to know there are like uh, DJs and sort of entertainers who just make their business like playing uh, bar and bat mitzvahs and that sort of thing. Um, and right. And are, are very popular sort of for certain groups and sets in, in cities, you know, and that like side current of weirdness, the Adam Sandler-esque nature of of so many of these scenes, and also just the fact that it is that it's tight, trim, and it tries, which I know is a little bit faint praise, but also for Netflix movies and for Adam Sandler movies, frankly, like I enjoyed this much more than the most recent murder mystery film, whatever that was. Was it just called Murder Mystery 2? I don't even remember. Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah, right. Like I did not care for that movie very much. It seemed like it wasn't trying. It just existed because the first one was successful. This movie felt like it was trying and it felt like somebody wanted to prove that they could actually take this relatively generic, relative, not generic, but this, but like a, in some ways, predictable structure and story and then make it specific and make it meaningful and also make it accessible to, to viewers who don't already get all of the, the cultural bits and pieces. So again, not exactly a movie for me, but a movie I very much appreciated and a movie I found uh, pretty charming. Yeah, it's nice. It's it's a nice movie. Again, I, I feel like... We, it's nice without being saccharine, right? It's, it doesn't yeah. hit you over the head with it. It's not too easy. And 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 the performances are also strong. Sonny um, Sandler in particular is... That's actually... Like, the, the role seems like it's easy to play, and that's because she's good at it. It is the kind of role that you could that is too easy to dismiss as like, oh, that's that's not much of a no. This is to be that naturalistic, especially as a young performer, like in a role like this is quite difficult and watch teen movies. Just watch especially teen movies that are not, you know, triple A giant cat like, you know, sort of like, oh, we've this cast has already done one of these movies that was a huge hit. No, like watch watch teen movies and look at those performances. They are wooden, they are stilted, they are awkward. And this is really not that. This is a good performance from a an actress with a lot of promise. Yeah. And one thing I would say, I mean, I think I like Adam Sandler a lot less than the two of you. But one thing I appreciate about him in the movies where I do like him is that I think he is a generous co-star. Um, and in a movie like this, I mean, I'm sure he didn't want to upstage his daughter in particular, but, you know, there's sort of just the right amount of him, right? He doesn't feel like he has this ego that's driving him onto the screen more than he should be. In fact, like, you know, his character is important to his daughter, but Menzel's character is probably even more important in terms of, you know, helping her kind of move forward. And she's also the character who makes the big mistake that, you know, causes the kind of dramatic climax of the movie. And so, you know, something you mentioned has like, he has this great deal and makes these movies with his friends. And, you know, I think you see that in his ability to leave space in his movies um, yeah. in a way that I really find just attractive. A part of what makes his movies work is that he is utterly, he refuses to condescend to his audience. He really appreciates his audience of people who like kind of dumb Adam Sandler movies. And he is very happy to keep delivering them for giant amounts of money. But like in, in a way that you, you see actors and performers, producers, like movie, filmmakers who are making something that is okay. It's maybe not the highest of art and they're making a bunch of money, but they are clearly getting bored of it. They kind of resent that they've been pigeonholed. Adam Sandler loves doing this, loves his fans and wants to deliver. And that's, that earnestness and that decency uh, and his willingness to not, you know, not condescend and just like, yeah, I'm going to make Murder Mystery 2 because you liked the first one and I, I'm going to show up in this goofy robe. And like there's I mean, it's just there's a real sort of winningness that I, that I increasingly appreciate the older I get. The robe, the robe cracked me up when I saw it on screen because I was just like, is he wearing a robe? He is wearing a robe. Yeah. Oh, that actually makes a lot of sense. I, get to, I actually I see that big the, terry cloth robe. <laughs> Alyssa, you you mentioned his decency as a co-star, his his willingness to share the screen. I, I almost get the sense he wants to be on the screen less. Yeah. Uh, for much of this movie, and not not because he's you know embarrassed or ashamed or anything, but just because he's like this isn't my movie. 
it's uh it's it's the it's the movie of these girls and and uh, I want I want them to have the screen I I don't know man I I just uh again it's it's not it's not a great movie I'm very much judging it on the Netflix curve which is is its own specific thing uh but I I enjoyed it m- way more than I thought I would. All right. Uh, so, what do we think? Thumbs up or thumbs down? On you are so not invited to my bat mitzvah, Alyssa. Thumbs up. Peter. Thumbs up. Though uh, this is not a movie for me. Thumbs up. Thumbs up. All right. That is it for this week's show. Uh, many thanks to our producer Jonathan Siri, without whom this program would sound much worse. Head over to Bulwark Plus for our bonus episode on Friday. Make sure to tell your friends. Strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. If you don't grow, we'll die. If you did not love today's episode, please complain to me on Twitter at Sunny Bunch. I will convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed. See you guys next week.